Welcome to the Lord's Podcast with Will Rowe. Well, a very warm welcome to the final Lord's Podcast of 2014. I'm very pleased to be joined by All Out Cricket Magazine's Joe Harmon. And alongside Joe, to chew the fat today, is Middlesex Managing Director of Cricket and England selector Angus Fraser. Welcome both. Hi, Morning. Will. You doing well? <clears throat> yeah, not so very well, thanks. Lovely. Well, with the sacking of Alistair Cook over the weekend, there's plenty to discuss today. We'll look forward to how England may fare in the World Cup next year. I'll also get Gus and Joe to review a busy year at Lords by choosing some standout moments from 2014. And we'll be finishing off with the Bicentenary Podcast Quiz. But first, I'd like to start on a more sombre note today. Since the recording of the last podcast, the cricket world's been shaken by the tragic death of Australian batsman Philip Hughes, who died at the age of 25 after being hit by a bouncer in a Sheffield Shield game. Hughes was well respected throughout the game and clearly much loved. Um, there was not only tributes from Hughes's contemporaries, but also a heartwarming show of support on social networks as cricket fans paid tribute to Hughes by putting their bets, bats out and to honour him. Gus, you knew Hughes well from his time at Middlesex. Um, what was he like? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, <clears throat> very emotional for everyone at Middlesex because he was my first signing as a in, in my position as Middlesex's MD of cricket. And we had a sort of six, seven-week window that we needed to fill because Murray Carter, our overseas player, was at the IPL. And through my contacts at Western Suburbs in Sydney, which is the great club that I played in uh, when I was younger, um, Phil's name was put forward by someone I played great cricket with, a, a lad called Neil da Costa. <clears throat> and that was before he'd even picked for Australia. He then went to Australia, scored back-to-back hundreds or hundreds in each innings of a test match and made a sensational start to his test career. And sort of came here under a bit of a sort of criticism cloud. We were sort of being criticised for giving Aussies practice before You were the getting end. it in the neck, weren't you? Yeah, and I, it's something I never believe in and still don't believe in now. I mean... Yeah. You, you you beat sides because you're better than them, not so, because yeah. you sort of create a set of circumstances that turn a 50-50 chip contest into an 80-20. And, and uh, it picked him up at the airport. So he's a little, a tiny little fella, uh, sort of twinkle in his eye, and, and sort of got to know him really well over that short period, uh, really bought into what we're trying to do at Middlesex and made a, had a sensational impact on the club, both on and off the field. He mm-hmm. scored 100 in each of the the first class games that we played I think scored over 500 runs at an average of 140 uh, during the time that he was with us and left here with everybody's thinking that further down the line he was going to come back and and, and hopefully sort of play a major role as a Middlesex's overseas player and it was devastating to sort of see the and hear what was taking place in, in Australia and I think the reaction to it by everybody sort of highlighted what a popular young man it is. I know sometimes when tragedy comes along people often sort of eulogise over over, yeah. over over someone's qualities but um, it was all absolutely true with him and there's not been any sort of inconsistency from anybody. I mean he was just a cracking young lad, enjoyed his cricket, went out there, worked hard, played hard, had a bit of fun off the field, had a real good perspective on life uh, and was naturally just someone you whose company you enjoyed I think that's right isn't it I think that <clears throat> so many people have said so so many similar things about what a, what a nice person as well as what a wonderful batsman he was I mean we had Sam Robson um, Middlesex England opener has written a piece for us in the latest magazine because he played uh, age group cricket with Philip going right back to 13-14 
And he said all the way through those age groups, not only was he standout best player, he was also standout team man and uh, incredibly popular amongst the group. Um, yeah, and and was and such a sad loss for cricket. Uh, I mean, he had been here opening the batting. Um, Football, well, if not for Middlesex for Australia, it could well have um, been. And in some ways, it, it's it sort of he embodied the Australian dream, didn't he? I mean, what Australian cricket likes to think. I mean, I suppose you go back to Don Bradman, you get someone from the out country coming into the city mm-hmm. and, yeah. and sort of proving to be a big hit, and, and that was the case with Philip Hughes coming from Maxville, sort of three hundred miles north of Sydney, identified, comes into Sydney, gets into the sort of the grade system there comes through, represents Australia, does well for Australia. Is the ideal path for Australian sport, really, isn't it? The yeah. fact that these these millions of young children playing sport out of the major cities in Australia still have a chance of coming through and representing the, the national side, and I think that's why it sort of hits so hard. Not just because obviously it's not meant to happen that this sort of professional sportsman. Um, in the middle of televised matches or highly highly sort of covered matches are not supposed to die, are they? And that along with, with, with his personality and, and his journey to, to, to become sort of uh, one of Australia's brightest young prospects, I think sort of really resonated around the country as well as through the cricket community. Yeah, he said <coughs> it was a... It was certainly felt here at Lords. You you mentioned there, Gus, um, players in professional sports. Clearly, they're not meant to die. Is there, in the aftermath of the Philip Hughes tragedy, is there a need to review safety in cricket? Well, it's it's constantly being reviewed. I mean, you look at um, the kit that is the players get each year, and it's constantly being changed. And that's not just fashion. Uh, a lot of that is driven by by safety, and, and helmets are constantly uh, evolving too. It's uh, the guy, I mean, everybody looks at any sport, don't they? When when something happens, and not just the kit that you use and the the regulations that are taking place. And he was actually quite revealing. I sort of watched the first hour of the Adelaide Test match to sort of again the build up to the because you knew it was going to be dominated by uh, Philip Hughes. Uh, sort of the build up, and then watching it, and David Warner comes in and smacks the ball everywhere, and no bouncers were bowled for sort of twenty twenty. First mm. four or five hours, then the first bowler bouncer was bowled, which was a good bouncer actually. It was Darren, Aaron, wasn't it? Was uh, yeah, I think it was, and it whizzed past Warner's head, and, yeah. and everybody you could hear the crowd applaud. Yeah, as if to say, we don't think that that that's still got to be part of the game. You can't take the bouncer out uh, of a game of cricket because it's something that, that a bowler needs, and 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 it, it is a, a sort of just a, a tragic event rather than something that is um, being caused by there being things that are wrong with the game. So. It sounds complacent to some extent when you say, well, you don't do anything about it because uh, a young man, has, his life has been cut short, but um, it is just a one-off. I mean, it's, a, you... it's a freak <coughs> tragic accident, accident, isn't it? And obviously there is a need to, to reassess. But I think, as, as Gus says, they are constantly reviewing these uh, helmet safety. As I, as I understand, a couple of years ago, they actually made, made it stricter rules on helmet safety. So those, those developments are constantly happening. But, but 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 players are also, and it's not just fashion. It's it's allowing them to do their job. Like you, I mean, I always remember when glo- sort of goal, sorry, um, glove technology was sort of moving forward, and sort of a long day since the sort of green pimpled ones that you used to mm. wear as a, as a kid. Um, and bats on the breaking fingers. They want obviously you break fingers. It reduces the 
number of reduces the volume of cricket you play. All of a sudden, gloves developed. Um, Fewer broken fingers are taking place, but batsmen are getting caught off the gloves in the covers and uh, gully when they never used to because it used to hit the hand and, and die at the crease. And batsmen almost didn't want to go to the new safety gloves because <laughs> it meant they were more likely to get out. Yeah. So they'd run the risk of getting a bruised finger rather than a broken finger against getting caught at gully. So you could devise a helmet that, that gives the player the protection that he wants or all around the head area, but the fact is it's going to be heavier, it's going to get in the way, is it going to allow them to to do to play that the way... And all these things have, have got to be weighed up. And as you say, when you get medics, I mean, proper sort of people in the medical profession, uh, saying that it's a sort of one in a billion mm. sort of thing that's happened and there's only been 100 recorded deaths in this manner in the history of sort of post-mortems or whatever, then you realise you're dealing with something very, very rare. And I guess the <coughs> one thing to bear in mind is that the, the last professional cricketer to die on the pitch was actually in 1870. Yeah. So, you know, a long time before I mean, yeah, helmets. It was, a... it was here at Lord's. Um, yeah, I think it was uh, George Summer of Nottinghamshire. So that was in 1870. So it clearly was a freak accident. But, yeah, everyone's thoughts at the MCC and at Lord's with uh, Philip Hughes's family. Uh, well, moving on now, the, the big news over the weekend is that Alistair Cook has lost his job as England's ODI captain. Uh, the selectors decided that he wasn't the right man to lead the team at the World Cup next year, and he's been replaced by Owen Morgan. Well, Gus, you're part of that selection panel, so perfect man to ask, really. What was the reason behind the decision? Um, I suppose what you come down to is the fact that you, you're picking the, the best squad that you can for the tournament, and we didn't believe that Alistair... Was in that within the best fifteen, so um, that that's the way, the reason the decision was made, and therefore you look elsewhere. And, and Owen Morgan was the standout uh, alternative, so um, it was a unanimous sort of thick feeling within amongst the selection group uh, that that this was the case, and therefore the decision was made. It's very tough on Alistair. We everybody accepts that, and because uh, he is a fantastic player and a, and a Fantastic young man too, um, so it's it's very difficult when someone is as um, popular and has given it as much as he's given. But uh, we believe that it was the the time it was right to to make that decision. Was it easy decision to pick Owen Morgan as the captain after you decided that Cook can no longer? Uh, well, conversations take place as they do, and other people are considered. But but Owen was it was yeah it was again uh, unanimously agreed that Owen was the right man to. Uh, to lead England into the World Cup. Um, I know he's not had the, the best of times with Middlesex. Uh, last year we had a disappointing white ball season. Um, but I think, I mean, he was unfortunate for Owen. Not the, I don't think it reflected on his captaincy, um, the, the the season we had, and, and watched him closely working with the players and the way that he handled himself in the dressing room and, uh, uh, and on the field. And I think he's got the attributes to be an excellent captain and... Uh, Hence the reason why Middlesex made him uh, captain in white ball cricket. And, and even when I first started at Middlesex, uh, we made him vice-captain, but all of a sudden he then got in the England side and and uh, the opportunities for him to captain the club were sort of minimised. So we went elsewhere, but uh, well, for some time in Middlesex, I identified that Owen is, uh, is, is someone who's definitely got captaincy potential and, and we're seeing that now. Joe, what was your feeling on the decision? Because it was it was a little, it was a shock decision, I guess. Um, I I wasn't that shocked to be honest. I thought a seven match series in Sri Lanka, 
Cook had to get some runs out there. It wasn't like a three or four match series that it was. It was kind of do or die, really. Um, I think it's a really positive move. Um, I'd have personally liked to see it before the Sri Lanka series. I thought it was fair enough he had this summer, given that he got into a Champions Trophy final the year before. I'd have liked to see Morgan brought in before Sri Lanka, but uh, I'm not going to quibble over that. It's happened now. I think it's a positive move. I actually think it's a positive move for England's one-day side and test side and Dallas to Cook. I think he could do with a break. I'm sure that's not how he sees it at all. I'm sure he's incredibly disappointed, but... England have got a huge uh, year of Test cricket ahead. Um, Australia, well, West Indies, Australia, South Africa, Pakistan. These are some big sides we're playing. I think he'll come back stronger for it. I think England one-day side will be better, to be frank, with him not in it. Um, and I think Morgan, the captaincy, might be just what he needs to, to spur himself into life because he's got a great record as captain of England and the chances he's had. I think he's averaging 70 or something like this. Might know, Gus? Mm, well, I know. I mean, I'd say he obviously got 60-odd in the... In the game that he captained in Sri Lanka, and I know he got some runs in the 2020s, didn't he? Didn't yeah, in the end of the summer, so. and the hundred against Ireland when he was captain there as well. And I think, I mean, in some ways, it's a brave call because actually Cook's got a better record than Morgan over the last 12 months in one-day cricket. But I think uh, if you ask the vast majority of England fans, they would always have Morgan in that side because there is that feeling that he will come good. Whereas I'm not sure that was the case. Well, I'm yeah. sure that wasn't the case with Cook, with the majority of England fans. So. It's, I think it's a positive move. Uh, obviously, no one has a blueprint for a World Cup where you change the captain two months before that happens. But the Sri Lanka series was a slightly odd one anyway because it's, it was so different out there to what they're going to have in Australia and New Zealand. The idea that these plans could be set in Sri Lanka and then used in Australia and New Zealand was never yeah. going to quite happen, I don't think. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you look at the, the, the Sri Lankan series and, I mean, we were, we were taking a side out there. It's not packed with spinners because you're trying to get as much experience into the team as who you feel are going to play a bigger role in Australia. So yeah. whilst it's that it's a bit of a juggling act between trying to win the series and trying to <clears throat> get the players that are going to play an integral part of your cricket moving into the World Cup as much practice as you can. And I think even in the game that Owen um, captained in, it was a pitch that cried out for Treadwell to play, but on this occasion they wanted to try yeah. a certain formula to see how that felt and how it worked. So... Um, it, it and it, it and again you you sort of look at the Sri Lanka series and you think well I mean England were beaten to a large extent by three great one day cricketers I mean Dilshan Jaya Wardner and Sankakara they scored heavily I mean they've been doing it for fifteen years so, yeah, yeah. I mean it, it does help when you've got players of that caliber in your team that are consistently going to uh, get you up in the, the high to two hundreds around the three hundred region and again. All right, England felt a little bit short with the bat against spin, but how predominant is spin going to be uh, in, in, in Australia in, in February and mm. March? So it's difficult to sort of gauge exactly where um, England are from the results that you've seen there because then some of the, hopefully some of, the, some of the cricketers will have got, certainly the bowlers will have got some useful experience in during those seven one days. Well, I was, I was really impressed by Chris Wokes. I thought he really stood mm. up in the absence of Anderson and Broad and bowled really well, and I think. I'd expect him to be a big player at the World Cup now. Um, He's a good cricketer, he is. And I, I mean, again, since coming back to to Middlesex from from the media, and watched him a few times and sort of seen him bowl, and I thought, how this this fellow's really good. And yet, there's been a sort of feeling and the question mark in the media about him, hasn't there? And oh, he hasn't got enough pace. He doesn't do this. But I've always looked at him and thought, this this fellow's a damn good cricketer. Yeah. And, and, and thankfully, that's coming through now. Um, and we're seeing him at his best, and we obviously saw 
in Coventry during the Test Series against uh, India as well. I've felt for him a bit because there is that, there's been a kind of constant tagline, he's, a, he's needing that extra yard of pace. And then actually he was bowling quicker this summer and some of the commentators on Sky were saying he needs to tone it down a bit, that's not the kind of bowler <laughs> he is, he needs to be working just concentrating on his lengths. I kind of felt he was a little bit between two stools but he, he looks like he's um, enjoying the responsibility of bowling the important overs at the start and at the death. Yeah. He's also, uh, particularly out in Australia, he can hit can hit a long ball, mm. can be a really useful guy coming in towards the end there. Mm. Um, and, and the other one we have to mention is Joe Root, because not too many England batsmen have gone to the subcontinent and batted in the way that he did and scored the volume of runs that he did. I feel it's kind of got a bit lost in amongst all the cook business, uh, and he deserves a huge amount of credit for, for the performances he, out there. Well, he just seems to be more, get more impressive <coughs> each time. You see him really, I mean, the, the different conditions that he... I mean, again, that's he's got 100 with a broken hand, isn't he, against... Um, West the West Indies, Indies earlier yeah. this year so it shows he's a tenacious little so and so mm. uh, as well as being hugely, hugely gifted as well so he's a he's a very impressive young man isn't he absolutely he's close to becoming probably one of the first names on the team sheet um, Gus we always do a few um, Twitter questions on the podcast these yeah, days so. hashtag ask Gus it was this time um, a couple of ones have come through Alecky Ronald on Twitter asks Will the new ODI captain be allowed to pick KP? Now, I know Paul Downton's kind of already answered that question, but um, I'll ask you it anyway. Uh, and you can Nothing's dodge changed. It. <laughs> um, the captain is not on the selection, is he? That's a fair He's answer. not on the selection panel. Um, we have various questions on Twitter about the process of selection. Um, obviously, it's going to be very sort of confidential what happens within those four walls, but can you shed any light on the meetings? Yeah, I mean, we, we would... I mean, the build-up to the major meetings, obviously during the summer there's an ongoing sort of evolve evolution of the squad or changes to the squad, depending on who's in and out of form. Um, and quite a lot of that will take place on the phone rather than us sort of meeting before each test match because there isn't much time really, uh, a lot of the time, uh, to sort of fit meetings in. But obviously at the start of series, um, whether it's one day or test series, uh, we'll have meetings and, and again before winter tours are picked and... Uh, we'll receive a lot of information about the physical nature of the players, where they are, workloads, sort of injury records. Are they sort of carrying any niggles and things like that? You'll obviously got a lot. I mean, there'll be psychological sort of assessments made to them too, which come with with how they are um, on that, backed up by performances, recent performances, performances over sort of the last ten years, ten sorry, ten. To matches three years etc etc so you're trying to get a good gauge on form and uh, armed with all that and some preliminary sort of phone calls would sit down uh, in a structured sort of environment going through obviously the captain's an issue that then that's something that tends to be addressed first because uh, you then sort of work from 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 there but other than that sort of sit down and, and, and talk through and pick the squad uh, accordingly, and I've I've really enjoyed the discussions. Actually, it's sort of sitting in a room like this and and sort of chewing the cud and talking cricket and trying to f- find a way forward for the for the side. How long can uh, they go on for? What's your longest selection? Uh, so we've had sort of discussed three or four, four or five hours. Really? Yeah. I, I mean, uh, because as well, you've you've often got the lions. Yeah. So you you things like that, and again, discussing the lions, the players coming through, um, getting the input from obviously someone like David Parsons who mm. is sort of very involved in that that part of the the England setup. Um, it, it's been good. I mean there's obviously been a few sort of tense meetings this year because of um, big issues. I mean no one can disguise that after England lost here to India 
at Lords to India. Um, sort of fell away rather alarmingly in the afternoon session. A decision had to be made, and we spent quite a lot of time there. And uh, and unanimously agreed then that Alice is the right man to take England forward in, in Test cricket. So uh, uh, there's been a, there's been a few sort of tense meetings along the way, but um, no doubt an interesting time. And it got to a point where the England side was so settled. Selection meetings kind of lasted more than yeah, well, 20 minutes well, before, Jane, before you were on board. Well, James Whittaker, who was obviously sort of a, a selector rather than a national selector, I think he started in 2008, something like that. So he'd had five years sort of in my position now as, as one of the, the sort of the extra selectors as such. And he sort of said that even in the five years, they never had a year like this where there yeah. was so much going on. And, and again, you, I suppose that the backdrop to that is you can't help is the Kevin Peterson and the constant references to, to, to him and and the sort of uh, support that there has been, or I mean, the fact is, I mean, how, how the support is, or what people's view on it is, it's hard to divulge because those that are unhappy always seem to have more to say than, than <laughs> those that are happy. Uh, but there's been that as a backdrop, which has sort of created an extra sort of uh, level of pressure as such that's tried to be created by some people. But no, it's been fascinating and, and, and very enjoyable. And I think overall, um, it's. I mean, you look at the one-day squad, and obviously you lose five-two in, in Sri Lanka, and things haven't gone as, as well as you wanted on that front. But uh, I think after Australia, uh, the, the, the personnel has changed quite a bit, and a lot of the players that have been picked have, have come in and shown that they've got the potential to perform. I mean, uh, just look at Moen Ali, the way that he sort of has, has come through. I say Chris Wokes as well. He's been given opportunities to come through. Gary Balance. Uh, Gary Balance. Yeah. Um, and, and even Sam Robson, who, again, all right, he's not sort of nailed down a test place by any means, but you come in, you score 100 in your second test, you've shown glimpses of what you're capable of. So I think all in all, there's a, there's a lot of good young cricketers in the, in the country that have been given opportunities and uh, hopefully English cricket will move forward from now. Next question I'd like to ask, also on, come through on Twitter. Um, quite a funny one, quite a cheeky one to be quite honest. Ian Rawlings asked, um, why did you and the rest of England's bowlers just bowl length to Brad Lara in the 90s? <laughs> it's a bit harsh. <laughs> what, length is against half follies and short and wide? Because <laughs> um, uh, I wish a few more bowlers now would bowl length more often to a, to a batsman <laughs> because actually it's harder to hit. Um, Lara, I mean, well, great, isn't he? I mean, I, you look at your career... And I suppose you look at the modern day players now and you see the only thing you probably envy is, is what they might earn. I mean, the fact is you could you play for England for seven or eight years now, you should be in a pretty good financial position when you leave the game. And uh, I think everybody from my era has had to go and work, which you've got, got no problem with doing that because you'd rather be doing something than doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the sort of the lifestyle that you had and I think was better then, the fact that you could greater freedom I mean nowadays everybody's got a view on you and everybody's got a mobile phone and yeah. y- y- there's very little sort of chance to be a silly sod and, yeah. and, and have some fun without someone sort of picking you up on it or running the risk of it sort of yeah. and, and also you look back and you think uh, they played against some great players um, you sort of your Lara's your Ambrose's your Walsh uh, your Richard your Richardson's your Desmond Haynes sort of the West Indies you go to Australia's your Warns your McGrath's your Gilchrist not that I actually played against Gilchrist, but your, your Wars, your Mark Taylors, your Slaters, etc., etc. David Boone, and you go around all the international sides, and there's some 
some fantastic cricketers that you've been able to pit your wits against during the sort of during the nineties. Uh, some all-time greats, but to me, Lara is the the greatest player that I was fortunate enough to to play against. Yes, he obviously scored three hundred seventy-five against uh, the English side that I was playing uh, for in nineteen ninety-four. But managed to get him out a few times as well, and and that's very satisfying. Just would you say you you guys got a chance to get to know the opposition players a bit more as well, and sort of uh, hang out in the bar with them after a game, whereas these days that perhaps doesn't exist to quite the same extent. A little bit. I mean, although there wasn't. I mean, I. I, I say the, I've played most of my cricket against Australia, West Indies, uh, or South Africa. Uh, I think the sort of cultural things that mean it's easier than, and so there wasn't yeah. a huge sort of. Um, and even against the Aussies, that was sort of tapering out during my career. The, yeah. the sort of my first tour, the first, the start of the, my first sort of. In the start of my international career, there was a sort of bit of that going into the visitors' dressing room for a beer and stuff like that. And there was always, at the end of an Ashes, sort of having a having a good drink together when it when when it was over, uh, as such, going in one of the dressing rooms and, and sort of spending a few hours there. But yeah, I I think the I don't know. There again, you you might sort of say that with the IPL now and and the sort of the fact there's so much more. That the more players spend time in the same dressing room as as, a, as another international player, mm. and therefore they maybe have a, a slightly strong relationship. But then you look at some of the way that the relationship they have, and they seem a bit sort of false at times, don't they? Yeah, they're, they're sort of put on each other. Do they really like each other? I don't know. But it's sort of it's all camaraderie and this word that I hate called banter. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I, I'm 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 I, I'm glad I played when I played and. Um, but they were going to say bowling length of lower. I mean, I used to. I mean, my view of bowling was the fact that, uh, and it's, I, if I ran up and bowled early eighties, hit a good length, nipped it away to a right or a left hander. It doesn't matter whether you're Brian Lara, Don Bradman, or Sachin Tendulkar, you're going to struggle to play it. And that's what you were trying to do every ball. That's what you believed you were going to do every ball as you set off on your run up. So. Um, that's why I kept doing it. Um, <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> some days it worked, some days it didn't. Well, that's a good answer. Um, right, moving on. It's been a very special year at Lords um, due to the bicentenary of the ground. 200 years of Lords was celebrated throughout uh, 2014 with MCC hosting some special matches along with the two England's test matches against India and Sri Lanka and that one day uh, between England and Sri Lanka. An MCC v rest of the world's men's and women's matches were played alongside a landmark fixture between MCC and Hertfordshire, a game played 200 years to the day since it was the first match to be played here at Lord's back in 1814. Well, here's an audio montage of some famous cricketing names who had a big part to play in 2014, starting with none other than Sachin Tendulkar. I mean, I had decided that, uh, you know, I need to score at least more than what my age is. That was the first target. And, and uh, I told as soon as I went past my age, I mean, I looked at uh, Sehwag in the slip and I said, I've done my job. Let's see how long I can carry on. Standing out in the middle and looking back onto the old old stand and even just the, the you know, the slant in the pitch as well. It's really, you know, kind of like um, the fairy, fairy tale, so to speak. To a fourth innings to play like that and, and get a win, I think, you know, that's... That doesn't happen every every day. The history behind it, uh, 200 years since that game first started, and um, they're playing it on the exact day, 200 years uh, later. I think um, it, it's something special. I think now nowadays a lot of the venues have that 
the honours board, but it, it's probably not the same as Lords. Everything revolves around Lords at, at the time of a test match. It's just something so special. Um, it's so festive and and you know, obviously a magnificent tradition that all the cricketers feel uh, from whichever country they are. Yeah, it was really special because uh, we got to know that how uh, uh, how special it is to uh, win abroad and how emotional it is when you work really hard and uh, everything uh, goes in your way. India's Ajinkye Rahane finishing off there on India's test victory um, here in July back at Lawsa. Seems quite a long time ago now, but... Yeah, just some some special moments there with Sachin Tendulkar, Elise Perry talking about the the women's match. Chris Rogers, of course, that famous 241 not out against Yorkshire, and many more. I mean, what was sort of your highlight of Lords in 2014? I know, Gus, you described Rogers' innings as the finest mm. by Middlesex batsman you'd ever seen. It is, and it was a remarkable, <clears throat> remarkable afternoon. I remember the day before because <clears throat> we bowled Yorkshire out. To set, and there was an MCC committee, cricket committee meeting up in the president's box in, box in the in the grandstand and sort of trying to pay some attention to that and watching the Middlesex game. And then all of a sudden, I think we finished, I don't know, 130, 140, maybe a bit more than that, for one overnight. And you sort of think, well, suddenly you need 330, nine wickets, the pitch is looking quite good. Mm. Um, hang on, there might be something happening here, but never sort of believing that it was going to take place. And then to sort of sit down the, the following day, uh, again, sort of try and say, I was trying somewhere private to sort of watch the game rather than sit in the dressing room because I'm not the best watcher in the world. A bit too emotional. Um, and seeing him produce this this innings, and it was, it was sensational. Uh, nothing short of sensational. And you think that I'd been lucky enough to sort of watch Desmond Haynes, Mike Getting, Mark Ramprakash, Jack Callis... Stephen Fleming um, sort of plays some fantastic in, innings for Middlesex going back to nine, sort of mid-1980s so over a 30 year period which again is a fifth of the history of Middlesex um, so it makes you feel quite old doesn't it? <laughs> um, uh, but that had to be the outstanding innings that I've seen and, and again the fact that it sort of led to a, a win yeah, um, and a, a sort of well, a virtual record near record run chase it was uh, I was quite numb at the end of it all, really, walking around the ground, sort of thinking, have I just sort of really witnessed that? Because um, he, he had a, he played a missed a few times, but he just sort of ruthlessly sort of cut and carved, drove the sorry the Yorkshire bowlers uh, to all parts of the ground. And gets the best bowling attack in the country <coughs> as well, and their only only defeat that year. It was, and yeah. I suppose for Middlesex, the, the highlight of the season for Middlesex, and sadly we didn't sort of. Um, move on particularly far from where we were top of the table at the start of June and then sort of got into a, a hole um, around one day cricket and, and never managed to get out of it mm-hmm. and just thankfully managed to stay in the first division by showing some real fight it wasn't that we played appalling cricket um, we only lost three of our last ten matches and one of those was a sort of a run chase that we set up against Nottinghamshire so we weren't getting thumped in in in, in red ball cricket we weren't even getting thumped in white ball cricket were a lot of narrow losses but we just lost the ability to win games of cricket and, uh, and that's something we've got to try and, as a county got to try and make sure that we avoid next year and, and we all take white ball cricket seriously but sort of it did undermine our red ball summer mm. 
Joe, before we start recording podcast, you mentioned that Gary Balance's knock here against against Sri Lanka that century. Um, which one was I talking about? Actually, my my favourite memory two. So yeah, <laughs> two so no, it was the it was the one I it was the Sri Lanka one. I mean, which which so the one where he hit the six. Yeah, he hit yeah. six to go to yeah. um to go to his first Test century. Yeah. It was the way he just I I love watching Balance back because you've got a few people who haven't seen much of him. And we're talking about him being kind of a slightly stodgy number three, a bit like Jonathan Trott, and that's a bit unfair on Trott as well, who also can play more expansively, but that's not what balance is. Balance is so versatile as a batsman, and the way he kind of bats through the tough times, will get his way to 30, 40, then when he gets to 60, 70, he really starts to accelerate, and obviously England needed to, to declare fairly promptly. Uh, so he, he didn't play selfishly, he, he just kept hitting, and that glorious shot to bring up, a, uh, bring up his century... Um, and I think he's just he's such a huge player for England now and I think he could be a huge player in this one day side now he's been in, picked in the squad whether he gets that number three spot for this tournament or not I don't, don't know we'll have to see his record is outstanding it is. I know some people sort of say well it's slightly sort of helped by playing in Zimbabwe uh, but even if you take Zimbabwe out of it I mean it's still a remarkable sort of record he's got today yeah. he averages more than 50 in first class and list A cricket which is uh, a pretty good effort Absolutely, he seems one of those guys who understands his game so well for someone who's still a young player. Um, a brilliant mentality, uh, going to be around for a very long time, I think. We played a game here again. There was a Middlesex or MCC Presidents Eleven against Middlesex Presidents Eleven game uh, on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, that, actually, that was quite funny because I had to leave the game halfway through to go to an English selection meeting. So I, we bowled first. I bowled my innocuous sort of overs. And then raced up to Manchester for a selection meeting. But whilst I was racing up there, England won the Test match, so everybody was enjoying <laughs> the evening. So it was a wasted journey in there because they had a couple of drinks, so it wasn't the sort of moment to pick a team. But just playing here again, and um, you get quite nostalgic actually, because uh, Keith Brown kept wicket, and again, not a big name by any means, and but a but a really important figure when Middlesex were winning county championships in the in the late eighties up to the mid nineties. Uh, and Keith Brown behind the stumps, and we sort of you, you sort of took his keeping for granted. We used to call him Iron Gloves and sort of sort of have a bit of fun with him. And then you watch him keep, and he hasn't kept for years. And how easily the ball went in his hands, really? and how well he moved. And you thought, blimey, all those years, Brownie, we've sort of really underestimated you. Really, I mean, this was a high quality cricketer, um, but because you're playing in a side that's got sort of Tufnell Fraser, Rambakesh, Gatting, Embry. Uh, and all and international cricket, you sort of you sort of maybe don't appreciate how good Keith Brown was, but it, again you sort of had this situation where Paul Weeks, who more recently sort of Middlesex cricketer, sort of rucking and moaning about the fact that he had to bowl at the nursery end and it was a short leg side boundary, <laughs> and moaning so much that in the end he ended up bowling his overs at this end, back to the pavilion then with a longer boundary down towards the tavern, and I had to bowl my overs at the nursery end and got slogged into the grandstand a couple of times so you just thought well nothing changes <laughs> here I mean basically sort of the spin of weeks he rucking and moaning and getting the end that he wants and me having to do the dog's work and getting spanked around up the other end so uh, it was it was a, it was an enjoyable day and Middlesex beat the MCC as well just, just so, so now well, Clive, Rad, Clive Radley was happy anyway great stuff well it was a fantastic 2014 a great year for the lords and the and the club as well and obviously middlesex special year for them 150 years as a club looking forward to 2015 uh, joe i'll ask you first what's what what are you hoping for cricket wise 
Uh, I guess top of everyone's list as an England fan is to win back the Ashes. That'd yeah. be the first thing we're looking for. Um, I think we will. I think we'll win it over here. I think it'll be a really good series. I think uh, we had two not especially great Ashes series from the point of view of excellent cricket in that we had, or at least from an English perspective, because England fans were moaning when we were winning the Ashes. That seems ridiculous now after what followed, but <laughs> the turgid cricket, God, all we wanted was some exciting cricket. And then a few months later, when you're getting turned over in Australia, it doesn't seem quite so bad. Uh, but I'm hoping for a really exciting, close uh, series, which England end up winning. And I think that's what we'll get this summer. Um, Obviously, we've got the World Cup to come up as well. Um, and again, I think we're, we're, as a lot of England fans will be at, at work, we were writing down our England eleven. And actually, when you look at it, it's, it's a pretty good side. And I think it's not worth getting too down the dumps about defeating Sri Lanka at this stage. I think um, it's, it's actually worth getting behind the team. A lot of people didn't want Cook as their captain. He's not their captain anymore. Now you've got what you want, get behind the side and, um, and support them. Because they've actually... There's, there's not much expectation. There's some good cricketers there. Um, and that's, Ed, I mean, Ed Smith did quite a good article on Crick Info, to, which I read, I think, over the weekend. And he was sort of saying about his plans and strategies. And they, yeah, they're important. Of course they're important. But ultimately, it's how well players play. Yeah, Players, I mean, you can go out there sort of with the best plan in the world to a batsman as a bowler. But if you can't deliver the ball precisely where... That the plan dictates you do it, it's useless and uh, so much I mean, and, and it sounds a bit of a cop out from those uh, sort of in coaching or sort of administration away from but it's about players playing well as you say Sangakara in Sri Lanka yeah. I mean when he's playing that well there's not a huge amount you can do to no, get your out. margin for error is minimal you're waiting for error aren't yeah. you so if Owen Morgan starts playing as well as he can play there's not a lot opposition bowlers can do to stop him so it's having those guys England's big hitters playing out their best at the right time and then so yeah who knows? So we've got some good players hopefully they get it together I mean there's and, and all of a sudden you can get some momentum in the tournament who knows what might happen as you said England go there as don't, don't go there as strong favourites in any shape or form but uh, all of a sudden you start winning games confidence comes around and, and who knows where it ends up and it's if you can sort of scramble together three or four decent performances in the group stages and get through to the quarterfinals you've only got to get three games right Mm-hmm. And and you could you could win a World Cup and uh, uh, England are certainly capable of getting three games right with a, with a, with a, the quality of players that they've got available to. Yeah. Well, it's a funny old tournament the way it's structured, but uh, we'll leave that for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, to finish off, I'd like to do the final bicentenary podcast quiz of the year. Um, Joe, you've played before. Gus, good luck. Um, basically, all you have to do is I'll give you one cricketing name and one non-cricketing celebrity and you all to get a point you have to tell me who is older so you're going up against each other Gus I'll let you go first so who is older Sean Pollock or the actor Damien Lewis Damien Lewis uh, I'll go Sean Pollock Damien Lewis oh. is older so yeah 1-0 lead Sean Pollock just looks old Foreign <laughs> love I was into the wind whilst Donald <laughs> had it <laughs> So 1-0 to Gus. Joe, you can go first on this one. Okay. Who's older, Marcus Druscothic or comedian David Mitchell? Uh, I'll go Mitchell. I'll go Druscothic. So David Mitchell, one all. Oh. Here we go. How many of these have we got? Is this a decider? Is no, it's, it's best of five. So best yeah. of five. I should okay. have explained the rules. Yeah, best no, of five, no, okay. one all. Here we go. Gus, you go first on this one. Owen Morgan or Adele? 
Owen Morgan. I think Owen Morgan's older. You've both gone for Morgan. You're both correct. So we'll go for two all. Right, penultimate one. You go first on this one, Joe. Who is older, Angus Fraser or Sandra Bullock? <laughs> I know it looks older. <coughs> I've got to go with Gus, haven't I? <laughs> I always used to. They always used to sort of say, "What's your perfect day?" And it was sort of taking a five foot lords and Sandra Bullock's looking at your phone number at Fireneg when you're fielding on the boundary <laughs> and asking out for dinner. She's lovely. She is. Um, I'd go for Sandra Bullock because no one will think of that. So you're going for Gus? And yeah, I'm going to be wrong though, aren't I? Sandra Bullock is indeed older. <laughs> You'd never guess it, would you? So three two to Gus. Here we go. Can we have a can we have a draw or can you take the win? Final one. Uh, James Taylor or Taylor Swift? James Taylor. Got to go Taylor Swift, haven't I? To try and even this up. Taylor Swift is indeed older by one year. So there you go. There you go. So three all. Well played. She's a, she was a mature young lady, wasn't she? Doing that. <laughs> She was on Graham Norton, wasn't she? With Kevin Peterson, yeah. yeah. She came across really well, and, didn't uh, she? And John Cleese, yeah. Talking about the cricket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was lovely. Um, well, chaps, thank you very much for that. It's uh, quite fitting that we finish with a draw. It's, uh, it's a nice way to go out on the year. Um, what have you guys got coming up over the Christmas period? What are you doing? Myself? Uh, well, just, I say, I just got back from a family holiday. We went to... Barbados, which um, we don't have a house there, as was reported in the Daily Mail, apparently. I wish we did. I wish we did. (laughs) Uh, The last couple of days with that were taken over with the England uh, Alistair Cook stuff, so that was quite sort of interesting. Um, I'm doing some Sky, uh, covering some of the three days of the South Africa West Indies Test match, and undoubtedly, maybe. Have a couple of, I've got to start doing my level three. I'm doing my level three coaching at the moment uh, up at Derby. We've had sort of um, modules up there. I need to get that organised and uh, and get organised so that I get my one to ones and group coaching sessions. So I'll sit down and, and pay some attention to that, hopefully. Uh, but I'm sure something will crop up somewhere that sort of distracts you <laughs> <laughs> within either Middlesex or, or England, that is for sure, because uh, young men don't tend to they get bored quite easily don't they so they tend to do something <laughs> or pick up an injury or do something stupid somewhere along the line well good luck with that I hope the coaching goes well uh, Joe uh, putting my feet up having a bit of family time we just sent a magazine to print uh, on Friday uh, yeah. which is out on the 30th of December so keep an eye out for that one in it we've picked our 20 most important players at next year's World Cup so not necessarily the best 20 players in the world but the players that if they if their country is going to do well, they need to come off. Um, you got a number one. Um, our number one was De Villiers, uh, and we had Robert Sharma. We've got an exclusive interview with Robert Sharma as well, which is a it's a good one by um, Andrew Miller, uh, which is quite rare to be able to get an interview with the Indian players. The BCCI aren't aren't known for their um, liberal attitude with the press, shall we say? So that's a good one. Um, De Villiers, he's an impressive young man. He is, isn't he? Uh, our England players were Owen Morgan actually uh, and we've got an interview with Owen Morgan following issue uh, and Stuart Rule was our other pick of the England guys on Australian pitches he's, well, and obviously New Zealand pitches as well but he's going to be an important player uh, he hasn't played much cricket for a while so it was a kind of if England are going to fire we need him to be yeah, be on top form 
So is he is he doing all right, Gus? Is he? Yeah, is I hear he his rehab's coming along. I hear his rehab's coming along well. So he was in South Africa um, in Potchefstroom yeah. with the Lions of Bowlers or the BPP, is it? In performance yeah, program. Performance bowlers. program, yeah. Uh, and I believe he's come through that pretty well. So excellent. Well, that's brilliant news because we, as I say, yeah, we do need him back. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it sounds like a bumper issue, so. Uh, there you go, a nice little plug for you there. Cheers, Will. <laughs> <laughs> well, a uh, very Merry Christmas to the two of you and a uh, Happy New Year as well. Cheers, Cheers Will, and to you too. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And to all our listeners, many thanks for tuning in. I'd like to wish you a Merry Christmas as well and a very Happy New Year. We'll be back in 2015 with more cricketing stories from Lords. So remember to follow us on Twitter, our handle's at Home of Cricket. Be our friend on Facebook. And for all the latest news from Lords, just go to lords.org. See you soon.